Father, on a day that in our culture we celebrate fathers, we would be mistaken and foolish not to begin of your great love for us. Father, we think of all of the great and mighty things that you have done. We recount in each other's ears the great works of our God. By the creation, power of his words, he spoke all things into being. We remind ourselves of that this morning. Father, you are powerful. Even now you hold the world together. You've rescued a people to yourself. You raise the dead. You give sight to the blind. You satisfy justice while at the same time offering mercy. You are a good father. We think of our own lives and we think of the the failures that we have, both failed by our fathers and failing as fathers, we see that there is still great grace flowing from your throne. And what's more, you empower us to be fatherly, to be godly, because of the resurrection. Father, we see in the work of Jesus Christ a death to the old man, to the old woman who walks in selfishness and idolatry. Father, we see a resurrection to new life. We praise you for that. Father, this week where we've forgotten that, where we've turned from our true, good, heavenly Father, where we've served other idols and other gods that are not gods, we ask you now for forgiveness. And we know that not because you are an evil Father who winks at sin, but because you are a Father who paid for our sin. We can come to you this morning. We can receive mercy. We can receive strength and help in time of need. Father, that time is now. And so we give you thanks that we have received that. Father, we pray that those who are listening to this prayer, prayed in the name of Jesus, that they too, though they haven't before understood the grace and mercy that's preached in the gospel of our good Father who sent his only son to die on our behalf. Father, we pray that as they hear the gospel prayed back to you, that their hearts would be quickened, that they would turn, they would receive forgiveness of sin, and that they, would, they too would walk in newness of life as they turn to you and pray to their heavenly Father. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we consider the words that you've given to us, how you've called us to faithful ministry, committed to one another, committed to your work here in Hagerstown. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in that. As we meet day in, day out, breaking bread in homes, gathering to make much of your name and glorifying you, we pray that you would be just that, glorified, and that we would be faithful to do that. Father, we think of the Welches. For many years they gathered here in this region with many of us faithfully executing the ministry that you had for them as a church in the English language. And now they wrestle to learn a new language so that the gospel could be shared, so that fellowship could be had, 
so that you could be lifted high in a new language. Father, we pray that as they study, that you would give them a blessing. Father, that supernaturally they would apprehend this language, that they too would be able to share it from their hearts and from their minds, empowered by the Holy Spirit in a way that would encourage and give growth to the church that you promised to build. Father, we ask that that would be true in Thailand. Father, we ask that that would be true in Virginia Avenue Baptist Church. Father, we pray that just as we've prayed for ourselves, just as we've prayed for the Welches on the other side of this world, we also lift up Brother Jerry Cooper and the saints that gather under his preaching right now, that they gather around that word. We pray that they too would be strengthened to be a faithful people that make much of you. And not just today and not just next week, but Father, may they remain faithful as they work to execute your ministry until you return, until the Son of God comes for the people of God. Father, we look to you. We have no hope elsewhere. We ask all of these things be done in the name of the one who was dead and is now alive. Jesus Christ, amen. I want to invite you to have a seat. As you are, I want to welcome you to Hagerstown Church. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to, on a regular basis, uh, open God's word and to encourage the saints with it. Uh, before uh, we jump into that, I don't believe in human sacrifice, but we are going to offer up Chuck and Paula this morning uh, to take Hubtown Kids, a yellow station, uh, to, uh, to their class. They'll be learning an incredible truth. But we're going to talk this morning also about another group that's leaving this morning. They can exit to my right. That's the gray station. So the blue station over here with uh, this human sacrifice, Chuck and Paula. Uh, it's a worthy sacrifice. And this, this group over here, the gray station. In the gray station this morning, they're going to be learning the answer to this question. It really follows up nicely with what we looked at last week. Since no one can keep the law, the law of God... What is its purpose? This is a great question. In fact, I could say it's an incredible question. Since no one can keep the law of God, why do we have it? There's much that could be said, but one reason we could offer this morning, and we'll be offering to the Hubtown kids this morning, is this. The law has been given. What's its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God, and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. This is the gospel, that God is holy, that you are sinful, and we need a Savior. This is what our children are learning. I challenge you every week, I'll challenge you again. When you see a child this this day or this week, ask them, be, be sure to ask them this question. Try to stump them just for fun, not to destroy them or, or tear them down in shame, but really to, to show that you care and that you're taking your responsibility that God has given to all of us to encourage our kids, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of Jesus. You can show them that. And so since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of uh, Savior. It's not what we're, what we're going to be spending our time unpacking, but it really, this morning, but it really does serve as a foundation for what we'll be talking about. 
continuing this morning our church covenant series, and we're actually in week eight. Some of you are wondering, how many weeks are there of this church covenant? Well, I won't give you the answer. I will in just a second. But I can also point to how you can know. Uh, in the black hardback Bible in front of you, there should be one close by. You can turn to the very back of that, and there is a, a half sheet double-sided uh, piece of paper that's printed there, and it's got our church membership covenant there. This is what we believe God has uh, challenged us, called us to promise each other. And so we're working through that now in an effort to help understand what exactly we have signed up to do and what the Spirit of God has promised to accomplish in and through us. And so this morning, bullet point number eight, this is the main idea this morning, main idea, we will work together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We work together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, we've just looked at, that's just been on the screen, I believe, yep, it's still there. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like it's a destination for us this morning. It's where we're heading and in order to get there, we've got a bit of map work to do. And so together, that map work will can be comprised of answering four questions. I love to ask questions and then solve them. It makes me feel special. And so that's often what I do. We'll ask these four questions today and then we'll read them or we'll answer them together. And so the first one is this. What is at stake? What is at stake for us this morning? What sort of challenges or dangers do we face here in the 21st century, living here in Hagerstown? What's at stake? And we'll move from what's at stake to understanding what are the threats. Maybe another way I could have worded that is who are the threats? Because the threats are personal. We'll move from what are the threats to is there any hope? We'll look fully into the face of the danger that surrounds us this morning and we'll ask ourselves, we'll ask the scriptures, is there any hope? And finally, assuming that there is hope, we'll find the answer to the question, how will we prevail? How will we prevail? And I think as we answer question number four, we'll find ourselves there at that main idea, working together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. What's the purpose of all this? Is there any urgency to this point? Why is it included in our covenant? Let's work to answer these questions. And so first, what is at stake? Now, I'm not going to work through the New Testament or even the Old Testament and, and demonstrate exhaustively all the dangers that we face. But I want to point out just a few. And we'll mainly stay in 1 Timothy for this point, and we'll venture into 2 Timothy as well. The first thing I would... Scripture, and if you want to turn there, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Also, it'll be on the screen for you. This is what the Word of God says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul speaking, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, challenging this young pastor, Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. How's he to wage the good warfare? 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, by rejecting a faith and good conscience, some, he says, have made shipwreck of their faith. 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What's at stake this morning? We won't take our time to unpack all of the intricacies of this and implications of being shipwrecked as one's faith. But we do know this, that these two men, once considered brothers, they sailed into shallow, dangerous waters and their faith was dashed upon the rocks, everything seemingly lost. What's at stake? There is such a thing as a shipwreck faith. Just a few chapters later, 1 Timothy says, Chapter 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10 say, I should say. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is a charming story that we could offer on Father's Day, right? There are those who would call themselves Christians who have through a temptation and through a snare, been plunged into ruin and destruction. This, this sort of thing can happen to Hymenaeus and Alexander. If it can happen to those who would be rich and fall into temptation, it can happen to you. But it says in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. So much that can be said again of this short passage. We could really stop here and we could just unpack all of this. But what I want you to really see is the danger that we face. The missteps, the snares, the temptations that are all around us. And where do they lead? They lead to you possibly being pierced through with many pangs. Potentially being led to being wandering away. From this faith and good conscience. These casualties come to us as a warning. We who are still walking with Christ. We who are still holding this faith and pure conscience. And really these two passages are kind of undergirded by, the, by Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are many who claim to be followers of Christ, and yet through lack of formation, through strain and being ensnared, they've pierced themselves through. They've wandered away. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These warnings... We would do well to listen to, to give pause. What we've looked at so far far really are mainly aimed at the individual level. But there are also warnings that would be directed towards the corporate body, the local church. Jumping over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul again Challenging and encouraging his protege there in Ephesus. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, For the time is coming when people will not 
endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here Paul warns that this local church will collectively turn away from listening to the truth and in small, incremental, and yet evil steps, the church will make its way from solid doctrine, solid doctrine to myths and falsehoods. It's tragic. As a pastor of a vibrant church which stands firmly on the word of God, I literally shudder when I read these verses. God, may it not be so of this church. May we not stray from your true teaching, the apostles' doctrine, from the words of life, and be turned away and wander off, and be satisfied listening, not to truth, but to falsehoods, and to be entertained by myths. May it never be so of this church. The reason why I pray that the reason why I say that is because it's possible. It's possible. Hagerstown is littered with the remains, the corpses of congregations that once held to the faith that we hold so dearly right now. Think of that. It's littered. I don't share that so we'll be lifted up in pride. But so that we really will heed the warnings that the apostle gives to us this morning by way of 2 Timothy. It happens. People will turn away from listening to the truth. They won't want it anymore. Their ears will be itchy. They'll want to listen to something else. And they'll wander off into myths. Here's a warning given by Jesus himself to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And so look, if you want to, you can turn your Bible. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 5 specifically, this is a collection of addresses that Jesus himself is giving to several local churches. Not to the universal church. Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, speaking directly to specific geographical, geographically located churches. This one particularly, Revelation 2.5, is to the church at Ephesus. He says to them, by the way, again, this is the church... The apostle Paul wrote to, specifically Timothy, he's pastoring at this church. Now, probably not at this time, but this is what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Turn again. Repent. Turn back to me. Do the works that you did at first. What were those works? We can assume that one of them was holding to, to solid doctrine. And not myths and falsehoods. And Jesus himself, the Lord of this church, the Lord of that church, he says, if not, I myself will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus himself, the Lord of the church, says, Ephesus, Ephesus church, if you don't return, if you don't return to these things that you were doing at first, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. We could spend a long time talking about what this terrible thing could mean. 
probably all would come to the same conclusion, at least here, to say that that lampstand actually was removed. Where's the church at Ephesus? Where's Ephesus church? It doesn't exist. So we can assume that the lampstand was removed. And so the warning that Jesus gave to Ephesus, he gives to us as well. There's an opportunity, there's a chance, there's a possibility that Hagerstown Church will also have its lampstand removed. These are some of the casualties of the spiritual war that we are facing right now. Church's lampstands being removed, individual Christians having their hearts pierced through with many pangs. Brothers and sisters who once held strongly to truth and to doctrine left that with itchy ears. Church, we've seen other congregations closed. We've seen denominations divorce themselves from God's word. We've seen pastors fall in sin. We've seen members turn away from the truth. We've seen our own family members and friends. We've seen their faith deconstructed before our eyes. We felt the heat of their faith as it went up in flames. There's a lot at stake. And this is a serious, serious sermon. It's heavy. But there's a danger about it. And so we must be on the lookout. We have to recognize that we are at war. And in a spiritual battle, in in a spiritual war, it's helpful to know who or what we are warring against. And so this is the second point on our roadmap this morning. We've looked at what's at stake. Now let's take a moment and look at what are the threats. Who are the threats? The Apostle Paul, again, writing to the church at Ephesus there in Ephesians chapter 2, he indicates to us that there are in fact Three enemies. Three enemies. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it'll be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2. This would be helpful. So many texts this morning, but this one would be helpful for you to see with your own eyes. If you have the black Bible in front of you, Ephesians chapter 2, it lands on, uh, on page 1160. 1159 and 1160, but this is what the scriptures say. And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church, the local church, Ephesus church. He's writing to them and he's saying, in time past, church, you used to walk You were in this sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually speaking. And he's saying this in the past tense. You were dead. In time past, you were dead. And speaking of the actions that they were taking, the influence that was upon them, he goes on. He says, in which you once walked, you were following the course of this world. Our first enemy this morning is the world. What's he referencing when he says the world? Is it a reference to the earth? No, it's not. It's not a reference to what we can see and taste and touch. You say, well, maybe it's, an ex- it's a reference to the existence uh, as a human in this realm, just being able to experience this world. He's not referencing 
your experience as a human being in this world. That's not what he's saying. When he says the world, he's speaking the course of this world. He's speaking of the zeitgeist, as it were. The cultural moment. The momentum of the thought patterns of the people. The present culture that rebels against God. It's the, the culture that demands you to submit or else. This is the world. He's saying you used to follow the course of this world. You don't anymore, but you used to follow it. It brought you along willingly in those days. And it would still drag you along deceitfully now after you've been raised in Christ. This reference to the world, the course of this world, is the various isms and philosophies that are counter-gospel. And they're prevalent. Even here in Hagerstown, many of them, pagan philosophies that are against the gospel. When he says, the course of this world following, you were following the course of this world, and he goes on to say, that the course of this world was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And here it's made clear that the course of this world the philosophies that permeate our culture, that they have a chief architect. They have a designer. They have somebody that is leading them along. The course of this world is following the prince of the power of the air. And we understand that to be Satan himself, the devil. And you may be thinking, here he's offered... He's pointed out what the Apostle Paul has said, that we have two enemies so far. One is the world, and the other is the devil. And you might be thinking, how can a man like this, in the 21st, 21st century, really believe that the devil exists? And what a great ploy that he has developed. That we would even be, think ourselves so smart that we couldn't actually believe that the devil is a real creature, created by God and even now exists, is bent towards destroying the church of God. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 warns us, similarly to what we hear Jesus say to Peter, his disciple. But here Peter is saying to us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. No doubt Peter has in mind Jesus' words to him. Peter, Satan has desired you. He wants you and he wants to sift you. He wants to own you. He wants to destroy you. Jesus, of course, says to him, but I've prayed for you. And now Peter is saying to us, hey, look out. Watch out. Jesus is praying for you. We're praying for each other. But listen, the devil is real, and he walks around seeking whom he may devour. Well, some of us, we think too little of Satan. In fact, some of us don't think of him at all. And that's exactly what he wants. And we could fall off the horse one way by ignoring his existence altogether. But the other side would be to be so afraid of him. Both of these are a mistake. What we don't want to do is to imagine that he doesn't even exist. Church, he hates you. He hates everything that we stand for here. 
He hates the word of God that we stand on. And he desires to sift us as wheat. Be sober-minded. This chief architect, what has he done? Well, he's created a culture that preys on our selfish passions. And really, that's the third enemy that we have. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, both Satan and the culture of this world, together they've created a comfortable habitation for your sinful, fleshly desires. They've created a place that's warm and comfortable for your sinful passions. The flesh, the indwelling portion of us that has yet to be put to death. It will be, and yet it is not at this moment. It's indwelling. It's that part of our sinful nature that still wars against our spirit and our submission to God himself. You remember that you were spiritually dead. Now you are alive in Christ. But there's still a part of your person that desires to sin. Last week we looked at this idea that because of our union with Christ, we're now finding ourselves in a grave, wearing grave clothes, and yet we're alive. And we hear the words of our master saying, come, come forth, come out. Loose him and let him free. There's still that part that desires the comfortable, sinful rebellious grave that we are now alive in. And Paul here introduces to us the three enemies of the church. One pastor wrote about a particular connection that he saw between the three. <clears throat> and I'm stealing it this morning. I call it the threefold satanic attack. It demonstrates the connection between these three enemies. You have the deceptive ideas that play to the disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Here we have Satan offering his deceptive ideas. He's the deceiver. That's what devil means. He's deceiving us. His deception, his lies, what do they do? Well, they play to our disordered desires. His lies really play well with the sinfulness in our own hearts. We want to believe his lies. And what happens? Well, the world becomes comprised, and really has been since the fall, comprised of that sinful society that is content to believe the lies because it couples well with the indwelling sin, and we create this culture. We see the beginning of this really there in the garden. What happens? Right after the creation of the world, Satan tempts Eve. He deceives her. And he does so by playing to the weakness of her flesh. She's able to sin, not required to sin, not a slave to sin, able to sin. In that moment, she's deceived and she gives in. And what is culture if not momentum? 
here now in league, in a sense, with Satan, the deceiver. Together they come to Adam, and she speaks. She gives this new philosophy, this new spun lie to Adam, and what does he do? Well, Adam takes and he eats as well. And the world really is plunged into and actually birthed into this sinful society. It's a three-part alliance of evil, a satanic league. And all three of them are waging war against us today. There's an evil that surrounds this place. And I want to speak specifically this morning to our cultural moment. Things have changed. The tides have turned. It doesn't matter whether you're 8 years old or 88 years old. Things have changed. What I'm not wanting to do at this point is idolize the past or try to pretend like it's always just getting worse and worse and worse. But you can't help but notice that the church that we have inherited today, that if it were to be thought of as a ship, it's sailing in a different current. It's in uncharted territory, as it were, at least for the last couple hundred years. And so we ask ourselves, how could we have lost so much ground? How could the culture and the current changed and shifted so much? How are we to prevail? How will this church survive? Will there be any of our faith and of our pure conscience left to pass on to our children? In a society where Christianity is not only considered uncouth, but unsafe. Do you realize, Christian, that culture views you as demented, yes, but also dangerous? So I asked this question this morning. Is there any hope? The stakes are high. We see so many casualties. The enemy is so strong and his plan so solid. And so we ask ourselves this morning, is there any hope? This is the third point in our roadmap this morning. And really it finds us in Matthew chapter 16. Again, I would encourage you, this is a passage, all of Scripture is worth turning to, to, but this is definitely one. Matthew chapter 16, in the hard black Bible in front of you, it's page 976. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. The scriptures say, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Peter's statement, his answer to Jesus' question is incredible. It's divine. It was given to him by God, Jesus says, the Father. The irony here, Peter, his name meant rock, means rock. And yet he was pretty much a, a rock head, right? He had a hard head. As far as him, his testimony and his leadership in the church, it was strong, and yet at the same time, it was wishy-washy. Is Jesus really saying that, Peter, you'll be the, the foundation of this church, or is he saying that your confession right there will be the, the foundation of my church? It's that one. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that is what the church will be built on. And Jesus says, I will build my church on that confession, Peter. And he says, I'm going to build it so well that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They'll not be able to withstand the church. Is there any hope? It seems as though there is some if that's not an understatement. What I understand about this passage is that over the, the course of its history, Caesarea Philippi was a center of worship for the Canaanite god Baal. You've heard about him. If you're reading the Old Testament, you've heard about him a lot lately. But then later on, it was taken over by the Greeks, and they dedicated this area to their god, Pan. And then later, to of Augustus, the first Roman emperor. But in this region, at the base of Mount Hermon, which is a, the large mountain system there in the north of Israel, there's a cave at the foot of this mountain. And that cave used to have a spring that poured from its mouth. And many people in Jesus' day believed that that cave actually was the gates of hell. So there Jesus, teaching his disciples, is saying, hey... I'm going to establish my church. I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to establish it so well. I'm going to build it so well that when it attacks these gates, they won't be able to hold it back. It will destroy and tear down all of these other false idols, be they to Baal or some religious leader or some political leader. They'll all be torn down by the church. And I want you to make, I want to make sure that you see this. I remember the first time I saw this. Jesus is saying he will build his church and they will charge the gates of hell. Gates are not an offensive measure, mainly. They are a defensive measure. And the gates of hell, the defensive measures of hell, will not be able to hold back the power of the church. So he's calling out, he's saying, this church. This group of reborn followers, they're going to advance to the point that they're going to be able to recapture people and places. Unprecedented. Can we gather hope from this statement that Jesus is making? We can. And I want to tell you why for two reasons. One is promise and two is proof. Promise and proof. If I were to open up a folder here, set it on a table here, and 
and say that each of you had the choice of taking one of the two documents that are found in there. Both of these documents would be checks. You look at the first check, each of you trying to decide which one you'll choose. You take the first check in your hand and you look at the amount. It's made out to you, but you look at the amount and you read $100 billion. That's a gift that you can take. You can take that first document. You look down, you're looking over the, the entire check, and you look at the bottom, and you see that the signer is none other than me. I have fixed the check for you, $100 billion. Your name at the top, mine at the bottom, lots of money in between. And I lay that check there for you. But then there's another check and you think, well, I don't know how it could be any better than that. But I'm going to take a look at it anyway. Well, you glance over that check and you see right off the bat, it is written out to you, but it's only in the amount of $10,000. Chump change. But you do look at the bottom and you recognize the signer of that check is Elon Musk. Which check will you take? The check that I've written? I don't know what you know about ministry. It doesn't have the same effect as creating multi-million dollar companies and many of them. If you notice, I am hardly on Twitter, let alone have the ability to buy it. <laughs> While one check may on its face be worth more, because of the signer, because of the promiser, one is actually far less than the other. Friends, the first check isn't, isn't written, isn't worth the paper it's written on. And yet I can imagine, along with you, that although Elon Musk has lost quite a bit in this recent downturn, he's still good for $10,000. The name is, the name signed at the bottom of the check, it's the most important piece. We all see this. And so when Jesus makes a promise to us, when he signs a check and he says, I will build my church. The gates of hell are no match for the church that I'm building. We say, that's an incredible amount of money. But you are an incredible God. And when Jesus makes a promise, we know that he is faithful. And so first, the promise. When we look at this promise that he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail, we say, he is a good and faithful God. But not only do we have the benefit of knowing that he is faithful, but we have a benefit that those apostles there in that exact moment did not have. And that is we can look back over the last 2,000 years of history of the church, the next 2,000 years of history for them. But we're looking back and we can see that Christ has in fact been building his church. Has he not? One question I had as I considered this truth is, how can a descendant of the pig-eating pagan Scots now be a gospel preacher in the new world? Because Jesus is building his church. And he has built his church for 2,000 years. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, who is faithful, he promised to build his church and he has built his church. And church, he will build us. There are many dangers, and we have real enemies, but we also have this promise, this promise of Jesus that he will build his church. And so how will we continue to storm the gates of hell 
as the universal church comprised of local outpost churches, how will we continue to do that? How will we prevail? And here we find ourselves at the last question and very close to the main idea. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. you're using the, the hard black Bible in front of you, you'll find this on page 1082, page 1082. Again, all scriptures worth turning towards, and two, this would be one that would be very helpful for you. We'll read verses 42 to 47 together, and then we'll work back through. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of breads and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is an incredible account. It's recorded for us, for our benefit. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Yes, in part. But in quality, it's there. We see his ability to rescue those who were held captive by the gates of hell. As in verse 41 this same chapter tells us. 3,000 in one day added to the church. The church that Jesus built, being rescue, or rescuing those back from hell. And it says that he continued to add to their number day by day those who were continuing to be saved. There's really two things that I take away this morning from the synopsis of the early church. And that is that Jesus made good on his promise. He was building his church. Those who received the word were baptized and added to the church. In verse 41. In verse 47, those that were added, and the Lord added to the number day by day. So he continued to add to his church. He's faithful. He promised. But another thing that we see in this passage is the set of human, human mechanisms that have been given by God that in fact spurred that growth along. And what are they? Well, now we've landed at our main idea this morning. Why do we have this main idea? Why, why is it there? Why have we shared it with each other? Why have we committed to these things? Because this is the fulfillment. This is the manifestation of the promise that Jesus gave us, that he'll build his church. How will he do it? Exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. We've summarized it in this way. First, worship. In mind here is the corporate worship. The church coming together as one body and worshiping Jesus. It's the regular gathering of the church to, to Jesus to see and to savor God. And that's precisely what's happening here. Praying together, just as they've been commanded to or we've been commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 2. They're praising God and singing together. Singing to each other, just as we see promised and, and, and commanded in Ephesians chapter 5. 
They're reading together. They're reading the, the words of God, the Old Testament, and the, the teachings of the apostles as we see commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Along with that, the preaching of God's word. As successors of the Protestant Reformation, we believe that corporate worship, every aspect of it, must be founded upon and sourced by the word of God alone. And so we pray prayers informed by the word of God. We praise God according to his excellent works and deeds listed in the word of God. We read the words of God and we expound upon them, not as if we have anything to add, but to help each other understand what he is saying. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is one of the foundations of this church. If we were to have a few pillars, this is one of them. That everything that we say, everything that we do is based upon, it's supported by the words of Christ, the words of God. And here we see they're continuing in these things. They're committed to these things. Even when it was difficult, even when it was difficult. Even when they had other things that they could be doing, yes. They committed. They continued. But not only do we see them worshiping God together, but we also observe them observing the ordinances of the church. Which, by the way, are two. So we have worship together and we have ordinances. This is something that we've committed to as well. What does ordinance mean? It's a God-ordained ceremony. It's a God-ordained practice. God has determined that his church should continue to practice certain exercises. Around here we call those things ordinances. Now, many churches call them sacraments. And you could call them either way. Really the terms are, are, are ultimately interchangeable. But there is a history to both those words. And sacraments has been used in churches that are saying that grace is being received actively as we observe the sacraments. And so one of those sacraments they would say would be the Lord's Supper or baptism. These are sacraments that contain grace. And when you participate in them, you receive grace. But an ordinance, or those who would say that that's an ordinance, are actually saying Hey, there is grace, but this is not in the act, but it's a reminder of previously received grace. And so we would say as Baptists that the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us of grace we have already received. There is no grace in the cracker. There is no grace in the juice. At any rate, we could call them whatever we want to call them. Verse 42, that says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But verse 47 says, and, they, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In verse 41 it says that as they were being saved, they were also being baptized. And so we see these two together. The breaking of bread and baptism. Both ordinances of the church. Ordinances are determined by three factors. You could write these things down. First, they were instituted by Jesus Christ. Instituted by Jesus Christ. He instructed us to do these two things. Furthermore, they were taught by the apostles. The apostles said, hey, these two things, Jesus 
instituted for us, and you're going to do them. And here's some teaching around them. And the third piece, and all of these are lesser and lesser in value as we move down the list, most importantly being that they were instituted by Christ, but in the least, that they were practiced by the early church. And so we see the early church recognizing these two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Speaking of the, these two ordinances, let me share from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Article number seven, it says this, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to death, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. It's a testimony to his or her faith in the final resurrection of the dead. But being a church ordinance, it's a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. So it symbolizes our union with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. There's no grace in it, but it symbolizes what has already occurred. Similarly, the Lord's Supper. Our confession says, The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So these two ordinances have been given by God to the universal church, but it's not possible to practice these two ordinances in a universal sense. And so they've been designed to be practiced in a local sense. And that's how we know that we belong here. We enter the local church, symbolized through baptism, and we gather together and are sustained around the Lord's table. And these two divinely given, indispensable reminders are part of, a def of the defense and the offense that the Lord has given to us in this present age. The ordinances, they're important. That's not the only approach. That's not the only response. That's not the only measure of offense or defense that has been given to the church. How will we be built? How will Jesus build his church? How will he establish us? Well, through discipline. Through discipline. Often we hear the word discipline and we think of a paddle or a timeout chair. And we could all have a good time talking about what our paddle looked like. Maybe it was a switch that you just picked off of a tree. Or maybe it was a, a nice paddle that your dad whittled and maybe drilled some holes through. Maybe it was made out of carpet. We know who you are, softies. That's not exactly what is meant here when we use this word discipline. Discipline has the same root in its uh, word as disciple. It means to train. It mainly refers to the positive formation of a follower of Jesus. The positive formation of a, of a follower, of a disciple of Jesus. The Lord commanded us to encourage one another. He commanded us to admonish each other. He commanded us to sing to one another, with one another. To read with one another. To pray with one another. And to teach one another. Now, I won't go through the one another's again. But they're there. There's a formation that's necessary in the life of of a Christian. And don't be deceived. One of Satan's devices is to 
lull us into a sense of safety. That's why we've spent the last 30 minutes working through the dangers that we face. In a practical sense, I want to point something out to you. You are being formed. Mother, father, you are forming your children. You're allowing them to be formed. The average American, I assume this involves Christians, they watch more than three hours of television a day. We all kind of look at the ground, look at, look at the roof, don't make eye contact. Three hours a day, what does that equal? It's, I'm not very good at math, but I do have a calculator. 1,095 hours a year. That's a, that's, a, that's a figure we have a hard time really grasping. If I were to change what that, looked like, what that looks like, that's actually a total of 45, 24 hours a day. 45 out of 365 are spent watching television. So we're all to be bunched up together. Another way to kind of come to terms with the weight of that figure is that 27 40-hour work weeks are spent watching television. 27 40-hour work weeks. You talk about formation. You talk about discipline. You talk about discipleship. It's taking place in your life. It's taking place in every person's life. The question is, what is shaping you? It's a little on the nose. But I'm going to read to you a quote by one well-known pastor. He says this, Your children will go to public school And they will be trained for somewhere around 15,000 hours in ungodly secular thought. And then they'll go to Sunday school and they'll color a picture of Noah's Ark. And you think that that's going to stand against the lies that they're being told. It's a staggering, staggering statistic. And that's not a defense of homeschooling or pulling your children out of the secular schools, but it is a call to say your children need more than a coloring page of Noah's Ark. They need formation. They need discipline. They need discipleship. There's not a one of us that would say that we've done enough. Why is discipling such a large part of our growth? Because your highest And most basic need on an individual level is not affirmation, but reformation. Think about that. Your highest and most basic need on an individual level is not what the culture says, affirmation. It's actually reformation. You need to be reformed. Your children need to be reformed. Our church, our mind needs to be reformed. It needs to be transformed into the Word of God, or by the Word of God, rather. And so day by day, brother and sister, you are being formed into something. May it be the image of Jesus by the tools and the mechanisms that He's given to us. He promised that He would change us. He promised that He would equip us. And these are the means that He's done it. Some of the practical ways that we recognize around here. Discipleship groups that meet on a weekly basis. Ages are varied, but same gender. Three to five folks coming together and holding each other accountable to to read God's word and to be formed by it. To memorize it and internalize it into our minds. And holding us accountable to actually being changed by it. And to engage it with our souls. Life groups are similar. Book studies. Early morning coffees. Text messages that encourage 
All of these are part of that discipleship that we need. And obviously Sunday mornings of which you are a part in this moment. It's part of discipleship. It's part of that discipline. The last component, and really all of this is built on, is doctrine. It says in verse 42 of chapter 2 in Acts, they devoted devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, who were the apostles? These were the guys that walked with Jesus. They were his physical disciples. And the apostles really, as humanly speaking, they gave us the teachings of Jesus. The, the, The Bible that we hold together was comprised by basically the apostles of Jesus Christ. And it says that the the early church, those who were being added to the church day by day, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does it mean to devote yourself to? To continue steadfastly. To latch on to. To be committed to. How are we to storm the gates of hell? How are we to just continue to exist in the graveyard of churches? It will not be done as we acquiesce to the cultural demands of this age. It will be done as we hold firmly and strongly to the apostles' doctrine. And may it be said of us, as it was of the Bereans, that we search the scriptures to see if what we heard on the news, if what we heard in the movies and in the music was true. Really the foundation of all four of these items that we say that we're committing ourselves to, that are components of our ministry of a church, they're all based on, founded upon the word of God. We say this around here, the word matters here. The word matters here. Everything that we say, everything that we do, it finds its footing in the word of God. And so for an example, a worship experience It may encourage your heart, but in and of itself, a song cannot renew your mind. Be it preaching, prayer, reading, or singing, apart from the word of God, there is no renewing of the mind. There is no spiritual growth. So what do we say? What are we committed to? Why are we committed to? So much at stake. The enemy is... So, so real. And yet we have hope. Jesus has promised to build his church. How will he do it? He'll do it as we commit to this. We will work together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. This is the reality. Before we close, I want to just provide some pastoral care a lot of what we talked about today can, can feel, as it were, a knife to you, stabbing into your own heart, and maybe you'll think to turn that knife on someone else. And so be careful of complacency, but also be careful of legalism. We talk about the importance of attending church and worshiping together and singing songs and good, good, good songs. And this is true. Let's not become complacent and sing and read and pray just any old thing. Let's also be careful of legalism. Furthermore, more pastoral care before we close. You might say in regards to worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, you could maybe offer any number of concerns, any number of challenges and interpersonal struggles that you have. Let me just speak to three of them quickly. You might say this morning, Pastor Josh, I just don't feel stronger 
I don't feel built up after this thing that's on that list. I just don't feel better. I don't feel stronger. We've all dabbled in weight loss, I'm sure. Do you feel skinny after skipping the first Reese cup? Do you feel stronger after taking that first protein shake? Which time did the trick, which Hershey kiss that you did not eat actually made you skinnier? Which time that you lifted that barbell did you actually get stronger? The answer is that it's all of them. It's all of them. It's impossible for us to say that we became skinnier or stronger in this particular moment, at least physically speaking. And so when you consider worship, when you consider ordinances, when you consider discipline and doctrines, it's not one, it's not a few, it's not most, it's all. And so we've got to be committed, as the early church was, and as we've promised to one another, we've got to be committed to all of it. And you might say, I'm not sure that I need to do this thing. I'm not sure that I really need that. Well, it's connected with that first one. I just don't feel stronger. You say, I'm not sure that I need to go to church. I'm not sure that I need to spend time being formed by the word of God in a personal setting. The reality is we've all been called out of the world, called to Jesus, and together he's building his church. Together he is building his church. We've been called out of this world. We've been called to Jesus. And he has determined to build the church through what means? Through these means listed. You say, well, I don't need worship. I can do that by myself. Oh, I don't need the ordinances. I don't need these doctrines. The word of God would say otherwise. Or maybe you would say something like this. Well, I prefer to do these things. I do do all of them, but I do not do them with the church. I prefer to do them alone. Well, again... We've been called out of the world. We've been called together. Not called out to be separate. Called out of the world to be separate from the world, but collectively we gather. That's what church means. Gathered. You're not as strong as you might think. You're not as strong as you want to be. And furthermore, we need you. And so when we think of all of these things that we're committed to, would you be just that? Would you be committed to them? Brothers and sisters, there is so much at stake. We're surrounded by the enemy within, and sadly, the enemy without. You may be tempted to despair, but do not lose heart. Do not let hope wane. Remember that Jesus promised to build his church, and to build it to the point of its advancement on hell, followed by its destruction. He promised to do it, and he is accomplishing these extraordinary feats through his ordinary local church as we gather. And so, brothers and sisters, stay faithful. Stay faithful. He's building his church. What should we do in response? We'll work together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. I'll leave you with this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Listen to them in light of the sermon. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning...
in light of the text that we've looked, looked at, and in light of the covenant that we've made one to the other, we just give you thanks. You've not left us fatherless. You've not left us to our own devices. You've not exasperated us by challenging us and, and crushing us with the law, nor have you abdicated your love and responsibility towards us, but you've walked with us. And in the face of great danger, in the face of legions of demons who would have this church destroyed, you've promised to build us. And you've given us the means. And you're actively working them in us. And so by the power of your spirit, Jesus, by the power of your word, we see ourselves built up day by day being conformed into the image of you. And so we pray that we would stand firmly on this truth. And we ask that this would take place so that you could receive glory in this church and throughout all generations. We ask it in your holy and precious name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and respond. And as you think of this reality that he's building this church, Sing this idea, he will hold us fast.